0: This is Eric Velasco, and you're listening to the Velasco Podcast. On this episode, I welcome Corey Winchester, who is a history and sociology teacher at Evanston Township High School. We have a conversation around the history of racism and policing in the United States, the systemic racism that is present in Evanston, and we also talk about what it means to have schools reopen in the fall in the midst of COVID. So, without further ado, let's get started. Corey, thank you for, for joining me today. No problem, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, um, your education, a little bit about your background?
1: You ask like, this is this is like the loaded question. So <laughs> how much time you got? Do you want like the 30 second version? Do you want like the medium version, with the long version, the extended version? What do we want? Let's
0: do the
1: medium version. All right, see, that's good. Everything in, in moderation. All right, so Um, I am a, I guess I'm gonna put this first, like I'm an educator, Um, that's very central to who I am. Um, But beyond that, you know, I'm a son, uh, I'm a brother, I'm a nerd, I'm a Philadelphian, Um, I'm black, I'm queer, like these are things that kind of make me me. Um, uh, I've been teaching, I'm going into my 11th year this year, history and sociology. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, identity development um, and more recently uh, some of my passions uh, professionally have included exploring like how we can create more humanizing learning environments for folks. Um, I am a PhD student at Northwestern and Learning Sciences um, and I think you know that pretty much encapsulates me professionally. One other thing I will add to that is that I'm uh, the staff coordinator for a student organization called SOAR, Students Organize Against Racism. I don't know if I mentioned that I, I work and teach at Evanston Township High School, which is how we are connected. Um, so that's that. And then I guess just, just me, I'm a nerd, I like to cook. I started gaming recently. I love... Uh, just um like home design and stuff like that um you know cooking is something that i do i meal prep a lot um and yeah like that's, that's just me in a nutshell i like travel so COVID has been hard for for lots of reasons like ne- let me like put that out there but um not being able to to travel um freely uh is something that i'm just like darn like I really wish I had that, that opportunity
0: but mm-hmm. that's it I think that was pretty good for for the medium yeah that was that's that was good that was good um so what what led you to go into teaching
1: uh so again all right, I'm just going to give you the the medium tidbits um I have to credit my first grade teacher uh for why I went into teaching I think I grew up in a space where uh, learning was always encouraged, other that been by my, my parents, my granny, um, but uh, my first grade teacher was the one uh, that I think really instilled this this passion for learning. So um, she kept our first grade class together for three years in public school in Philly. Miss Gray, she's still teaching. Um, you know, our story is, is out there. We talk about, you know, this um, and I actually feel like it it embodies the work that we do as educators. Um, it's funny because when she came, so she came to she came to Evanston um, when I won um, my Golden Apple Award, and she actually like sat in class, which was super crazy, and gave me, I was looking at it, I was looking for it, she gave me a copy of our, wow. our list, um, you know, the little pictures that you get. Um, so I had Miss Gray back in 1994, 1995. Um, so we've known each other for, I don't know you do that math It's over 25 years um and she's been uh part of my family i've been a part of her family um you know my family has been over for, for family dinners uh you know she's she's been over she actually took me when i was thinking about this she actually took me on my my first like college tour um uh, mm-hmm. and uh i didn't really think about like when i went on a college tour um you know, with her, I think I was in 10th grade. Um, but, you know, even, even beyond that, like she's just been an advocate and uh, a family friend. Um, when I studied abroad, uh, she had actually uh, told me to go spend time with her aunt, who I, who I met before at her wedding. And we also went to New York together because um, she, she took me to New York for like a day trip uh, with her mom, her, her aunt and her husband, um, her partner. And, um, yeah. So when I studied abroad as a, like going into my, my junior year, when I I was a junior in college, uh, she actually was like, uh, you should go and stay with my aunt, like, you know, figure it out. Um, she, she gave me, uh, uh, a little bit of, of of money to travel when I was there, so I went from London to stay with her aunt in in Italy, which was cool. Her aunt's Italian, um, and it was just cool. I had like a uh, like a a personal tour of like Venice and this little town called Quinto di Treviso, and then I went to Padua, um, and we just spent time together, uh, and it was just cool for me to learn. More about, um, you know, Miss Gray and her family. I mean, Miss Gray has known me and my family for a long time. She's known Mm. my parents. She's known my granny. Uh, She came to my granny's funeral when she passed away. Her and Miss Gray's mom. So, when when I think about like what has gotten me into education, it's really been about the relationship piece, um, in the way that she saw my full humanity. Which doesn't happen in our education systems. And I actually think that's what's been a motivating factor for me to continue doing the work that I do. Um, you know, I can truthfully care less about how much you learn, um, just like random like facts in my class. But I would rather you walk away with an understanding of who you are, and who you are in relation to other people. Um, because that's, that's how we actually can exist alongside one another. Um, and the accompanying, like the, the knowledge that comes with that, that accompanies that is what I, I really uh, value within my work as an educator. So that's long story short. That's what got me uh, into teaching. I think I decided when I was in, in high school, junior year, that I wanted to be a teacher, although most folks don't know. I was going to be a math teacher up until I took calculus, and I was like, "Uh, hell no." (laughs) mm, Me and calculus did not get along. uh, Senior year, Um, it did not. We did not. Um, I partially blame my math teacher. Uh, I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) be throwing any names um, out there. I don't want to do that. Uh, But yeah, killed my love of math. Uh, I feel like I had a dope calculus teacher. I would have been. Uh,
0: adult math teacher. Yeah, so, sort of like, you know, there's this fixed model of of education that you know, we all perceive, and like in the classes that, that I've, the class that I've taken with you back in what, like 2016, four years ago when I was a teacher. all <laughs> I mean, your class is just, is modeled around the students, and not the material, from from what I saw, and I think that a lot of teachers now are are going in that direction of not following this you know structured educational model of sitting looking at a whiteboard and just taking in all this material.
1: Yeah, no, that that stuff is bogus, um, and is it's, it's, it's taking me time to learn um and I, I will say this about like going to going to school um you know I understand that a lot of the the spaces that we engage in when we when we go to college are inaccessible for a lot of folks um, but I am really thankful for the opportunities that I've had in some of those spaces because it put me in conversation with folks it really challenged me to uh, do things. And it's not to say that that couldn't happen in spaces, um, you know, outside of educational institutions, but the the community of, of people who are like-minded in those spaces, coupled with the folks that I met outside of those spaces, are the ones that really challenged me uh, to to do the work that I do in the classroom in the way that I do it, right? So, yeah, we we like there's there's just models that I reject about how schooling happens and how it should happen, and um, what I try to hold, like up to, I would say like this past year, I think I've tried to um, get folks to uh, take like a, and I named it as this at the time like a social justice approach to things, until that word to me lost its meaning because everyone would just kind of throw it around and. Um, one person that I credit a lot of the direction that I take as an educator right now is uh, Patina Love. Um, she wrote this book uh, that was published last year that's real dope. It's called We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. She signed my book when I met her at a conference uh, last year as well. And um, like this idea of being an abolitionist teacher is something that I... And trying to hold on to. Um, And I guess what that term, like abolitionist, means is that it's it's like a literal rejection of all of the systems of oppression, starting with like anti blackness and, you know, looking at white supremacy, settler colonialism, um, realizing that the ways that we um, have internalized like gender identity and sexual orientation are also tied to, you know, white supremacy and settler colonialism. So there's so much if we could abolish all that shit, education would be, it'd be so much better. Uh, and that, that is like, a, it may seem like on the surface like this like utopian ideology, but you know, at the same time, um, this is possible. Uh, and what I've appreciated about Love is that, uh, you know, she's talked about the ways in which this disruption and this change could happen. And we actually saw a lot of it happen with quickness during this pandemic. So, um, I kind of went off uh, on my own little tangent there. It's but okay. <laughs> one of one of the things that you know, just to connect this back to the the comment that you made, was just like how I, I focus on people first um, in the space, and you know, the 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 medium that I decide to use through curriculum is is really how I support that. So. Uh, It'll always be people first. I don't really, you know, I don't like following rules either. I don't.
0: So you're a history teacher and a sociology teacher. Can you give us a brief history of racism in the United States? Um, more specifically, <laughs> yeah, you can't really make it brief, but um, specifically how, because what we've seen with police, specifically in the United States, and how they've treated um, people of color. And talk about how racism has been embedded in the police system since the beginning.
1: Okay, so there's, there's kind of like two directions to go with this, um, that crisscross. I don't know. The image that came to my came to mind was like a DNA strand, it like a double helix. I don't know why, but um, you know, there the history of policing is inherently tied to the development of these racial categories in service of like making white supremacy a thing. Um, for for those that don't know, this nation has been founded on white supremacist principles, right? Um, or this idea that um, you know, practices, um, uh, you know, beliefs, uh, ideologies that, um, have made the United States what it is are, you know, supreme. And part of what has resulted from these white supremacist like ideologies, is this idea of, of, um, like looking at how we name relationships to bodies as objects um, and what bodies can do uh, and produce, that becomes a manifestation of white supremacy. So we see this happening in relationships or relation to how we understand race, for example. Um, We created these categories based on the, the color of folks' skin in order to um, promote this capitalist society that was predicated on stealing indigenous lands and then using black labor um, to make and sustain an economic system. we also see white supremacy playing out in the way that we understand gender roles, for example. We've created this binary that we've associated with uh, what we believe and perceive of people's physicality as it relates to sex. Um, so like the manifestation of uh, like white supremacy um, like, has produced racism and anti-blackness, right? Um, and that's something that we've seen since before the United States existed. Um, and as a colonial idea, it is rooted in uh, a lot of uh, European thinking, um, you know, during the Enlightenment, um, you know, during the time of uh, global exploration post Columbus. So, I think we have to understand that first, and then this became embedded um, in the fabric of you know how we created this nation. Um, so, it ex it exists in so many contradictory ways right so we had thomas jefferson who authored the declaration of independence but yet also said that black people don't don't need to sleep and that they don't feel pain mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know help to facilitate this dichotomized reality uh, where we have people who are defined as human and those who aren't right so I think we have to understand that's that's first and foremost a part of the fabric of the United States. Um, then you you know you fast forward we see uh, you know manifest destiny as a concept where indigenous lands and life and reality are uh, experiencing genocide and attempted erasure and erasure in, in many respects we see the seizure of lands just so that we can maintain the system of slavery right um, This is the same thing that got us involved um, with Mexico. We started the Mexican American war so that the United States could obtain more land for slavery. Um, And a lot of that had to do with how the system of of government was set up. Uh, We had to make sure that, well, folks wanted to make sure that they were able to maintain this this balance or at least this perception of, of, of power and protecting the institution of slavery. Which was really threatened by uh, the way that Senate was set up. So, if you had more states that were pro slavery, then you'd be able to maintain it. Right. Right. Um, So, like, again, like embedded in this, we're we're seeing the the, the impacts of that. And what I think folks fail to realize is that the way that we understand and construct identities is still connected to this notion of white supremacy, which is why you can't really talk about liberation. uh you know when we're when we're thinking about challenging anti-blackness without talking about how that's impacted indigenous communities how that's impacted our relationship with latin america because at the foundation anti-blackness is what drove that so um fast forward uh to policing and we see the creation of of uh you know slave patrols you know to capture folks who had run away who were enslaved um you know looking for (laughs) freedom and you know just a way to get out of these oppressive structures that we've created for um you know dark folks and, and dark people and black people uh in the united states so um that i think is is where we see kind of the history of policing and You know, oftentimes we don't really talk about that development or that connection to, um, or the ways in which uh, policing happened when we started to create these differences in in othering, right? So even as we saw different groups of folks coming from Europe, uh, there was an us versus them mentality between, um, you know, Anglo Saxons, people that have like British, Irish, you know, Scottish descent um, and the attempted protection from folks from Germany or Italy or parts of Eastern Europe um, who at that time weren't considered white, right? So um, there was policing in those communities uh, as well as what was happening to black folks um, that, you know, uh, we saw if you watch 13th, which is a great documentary, like we, we saw that shift from slave patrols to criminalization of just black realities right? after uh, black people uh, had freed themselves. So, you know, fast forward to, to where we are, you know, today we're seeing, uh, you know, years and years of, of trauma, um, you know, as a result of, of Jim Crow in, um you know redlining gentrification like we, we've seen policing embedded in all of those institutions um and I think we're in this like really scary time where we have so much evidence of it happening um yet we haven't really seen massive change uh, we haven't seen revolutionary change uh, and I think that's where we are at this particular moment um, I think George Floyd's death um as well as, as well as the death of uh, Breonna Taylor uh, and uh, Tony Mac- McDade. Um, like all of these stories that we've seen, um, particularly since I think Trayvon Martin, uh, and we can go back to Rodney King, which I think was one of the first ones that I was able to reference. Mm. Like we, we keep seeing these continued acts over and over and over and over and over. Um, and i think it was uh, elevated by the fact that folks have been pretty stationary during the pandemic and have actually had time to think and process and see cuz you, you you can't escape it now like what you doing you ain't working you're sitting um you know uh trying to avoid you know catching this uh disease that we still don't know that much about that's been around for you know 6 7 months so that in a nutshell is is where uh, the history of racism and, and policing, I think, come together.
0: We hear a lot of this idea of post-racial America. And clearly that's not true. Who's still who's still saying that? I know, right? People are still saying that. I don't know who's saying it. I don't know who's saying that now. None of my none of my friends are saying it. Uh, for sure. I mean, none of my friends are saying that. Your listeners, they be saying that? I, ho- I hope not. I'm about to say it. <laughs> but why are people still, why do people think we are in a post-racial America?
1: Well, that's such a BS turn. You know, I think
0: that's all because we
1: had a black president. You know, there's this belief that, you know, you you, you achieve or you get someone in a place where they weren't supposed to be and because someone has gotten there, then everything is fixed. I mean, that's just not true. Things are not fixed. Um, so, yeah, that post-racial notion came up, particularly during Obama's administration. I don't talk about it as a thing because it's not a
0: thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely brought up in the night, People were like, oh, racism is over. It's like no, it's not. No, it's not. And we're twelve, twelve years later, and it's. Like,
1: if anything, the election of twenty sixteen was a
0: manifestation
1: of, of of how, like, racist progress has still been continuing.
0: Yeah.
1: If people didn't know.
0: <laughs> Something, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of, think back of. Your class, um. Remember, we always, we would sometimes talk about this idea of reverse racism. Is reverse, is, is, is there such thing as reverse racism? So that's funny. You said we were, we were talking about it. I feel like, I, I was, I feel like we like had some discussion about it. Because I was probably telling you that it,
1: not probably, I was most likely telling you that it's not real. Yeah. Something like that. Um, now you can't have reverse racism um, at all because racism is really about a system right so um, there's a, a comedian his name is amir uh well, i don't remember his last name i think Rahman. um he's a british comedian um uh i think he is or identifies as south um like south asian as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he does a stand up, um, you know, and and part of what he what he says and he shares, he's like, talking about how white people can't dance, how they can't jump, somebody in the audience yells out, Oh, that's reverse racism. He's like, uh, I'll tell you if that's reverse racism, if we get a time machine and we go back in time, and instead of Europe, going into people's lands and homes, taking all their shit, and um, you know, uh enslaving folks and then creating wars that you know blow people's homelands to smithereens he's basically saying that if we went back in time and did that then that would be reversed yeah race. so to me this notion of reverse racism is not a thing now i will say people participate in uh prejudicial and discriminatory practices that's real yeah um, and um there, there is racial discrimination. There is racial prejudice that I think all folks, uh, because of the way that we've internalized white supremacy engage in. So um, that's something that I, I, I will put out there, not in response to folks that say reverse racism is real, <laughs> um, but to qualify, I think, the ways in which uh, a lot of people uh, can participate. Um, you know, in things that seem, uh, you know, racial or racist. And I guess the reason why I'm saying that is because, you know, uh, I think along that lines, there's been conversations around whether or not black people can be racist or mm. people of color can be racist. And my answer to that is no, they can't because it's about the system, but folks can carry, you um, you know, discriminatory ideas, uh, and they can internalize uh, racist ideas, right? So, I think that's what we see with people like uh, uh, Ben Carson, <laughs> um, who is a black man that I think has made conscious decisions uh, <laughs> to not like himself. Um, and I, and I, when I say not like himself, I, I mean that he's you know really participating in ideologies that cause harm to black people is anti black right um the rhetoric that he uses the policies that he uses um his affiliation with uh you know uh the the current the current president um like like that's what i that's what i mean by that and i wanted to i guess extend that as it was a thought that i was thinking of i just didn't want folks to think i was conflating this notion that well, oh, if you're, you know, uh, anti or reverse racism doesn't exist, and you're talking about, um, you know, racial discrimination, then clearly something exists. I I don't want those two to be conflated.
0: As a as a teacher at ETHS, do you think? the students there are treated equally. I mean, what what do you think? I'll start with you with that that question first. There's a reason why you're asking it. So, what do you Yeah, think? yeah. I was just because I'm in a class right now for my internship and we have like a discussion board and I was talking about how at least when I was there, I don't know how things have changed in 3 years, but I saw when you look at, you know, AP classes and honors classes, most of them are filled with white students. And then you look at the regular level classes and there are people of color. Mm -hmm. And from what I've seen is it's not that they weren't smart enough to get in those classes, but it's because they weren't given the opportunity to. That's how, that's how I, so that as as a student. So like to your question, your question, uh, your question again, wait, say your question again. Do you think all students are treated equally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think you answered that. <laughs>
1: uh, like yourself, no, but, um, or not but. And I would also add to even the way that we um, position or think about what is best for folks has been informed by an equitable system from the start. So oftentimes the conversation at Evanston is like, how do we get more kids into And when they say more kids, I'm talking about kids of color. How do we get more kids of color into AP classes? Why have we named AP classes as the standard? What about advanced placement classes um, is rooted in, uh, You know racist uh thoughts or undertones you know um as a as a system ap classes were put in place uh to um you know basically create opportunities for folks to uh, move ahead to advance (laughs) Um, and we know if we look at when ap classes uh you know started i think in the Maybe late '40s, early '50s. This is like post World War II. We um, you know at that point in time, um, you know, prior to 1954, that we had an inequitable education system. Yep. And not to say that 1954 was the moment that that changed, but oftentimes people think, "Oh, well, we got rid of that; and everyone's equal now." No, our education system has never actually been fair. It's never been equal. It's never created opportunities for uh, folks to flourish. Um, but we put this false belief that if you get a quality education, then you'll be able to you know, do anything that you wanna do in life. Um, and I think we have to, Bettina Love talks about this in her book, we gotta stop telling people that that's the reality. Because I know folks who have done the same things that we have done, who have gone to school, who have played the game, but yet are denied opportunities all the time. And I also think when we talk about AP, for example, when we start with AP, it perpetuates that same issue. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so much that's inherently flawed about our education system. Um, and I think that uh, ETHS, uh, as much as as it's applauded for its work um still has a lot of stuff to do because it still maintains a lot of these really problematic systems um you know why haven't we started with regular classes and tried to make them uh you know as dope as they could be right uh why have we not had conversations around so what would it be like for us to make our quote unquote regular regular classes amazing. Uh, haven't we restructured them? But we talk about restructuring AP. We create a whole team ASAP so we can support, you know, like kids of color in a in the AP space, but we don't support kids of color in a regular space. So I'm confused <laughs> about where our parties are. Uh, and again, I think that's 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 telling about what we value, who we value. If you're not in the AP space, then you're
0: not valued. Yeah. Going, going off of what you said about, you know, there's still a lot of change that needs to happen. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember how long ago it was. It was recently um, Black Lives Matter was painted on the street in front of the school. Mm-hmm. And in response to that, there were a lot of people who weren't very happy about it because they were saying, you know, that's great that you're putting Black Lives Matter, but there's still changes that need to happen within the school and with um, the school-to-prison pipeline. What are are your thoughts when, you know, Black Lives Matter was painted in front of the school? I thought it was performative. Like, I think many of the actions that
1: we're seeing are performative. Um, and that's not to say that people aren't well-intentioned, but intentions aren't gonna change things.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, I mean, I, I think that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, I think it was interesting that the Black Lives Matter sign and work was painted by the like the, the boys basketball team and program, which is uh, at, at Evanston, it is majority black right Um, and the ironies that exist within that (laughs) yeah Um, so I mean I I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done but you know for me I think my my biggest critique is that it felt very performative to me because I don't know what other significant changes are happening um, you know to really let folks know in our space that black lives do matter. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the, the things that um, I struggled with, not struggled, but struggle with when I think about the United States, for example, because there are so many contradictory realities in this nation and it's quite difficult to hold them in tandem. I think it's even something that I've I've struggled with myself. You know, what does it mean for me as a as a you know as a as a black man um to teach and work in a community that isn't my own, you know? Um, when I think about where I came from and the lack of opportunities, um, you know, that folks like me who are black and male um and queer, uh what they have there versus what I'm what I have access to to be able to do as an educator in Evanston is, is vastly different. And I, you know, for a long time I was just like, yo, did you did you did you sell out? Um and ultimately I don't think I, I have, um, because uh the reality is that the 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 race the the racist systems and structures that are in play in this community the same ones that are in play in philly are the same ones if i were to go and teach in you know rural illinois which i don't think i would (laughs) i would do um they're present down there too uh so um you know I, i i share that just to say that we have a lot of Realities that are contradictory, um, and I felt like the the painting of Black Lives Matter in the street uh, in Evanston by the the boys' basketball team um, was something that was contradictory. It was performative to me.
0: Yeah, and something too. You always here. like people are surprised when you say, you know, well, Evanston is like the city is. I think people people picture Evanston as being this like perfect liberal city, but in fact it's there's racism that's embedded too with the police department and mm-hmm. with the school system.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. The the two criminalizing bodies in, in Evanston, the school yeah. and the prisons. Um yeah, there's there's a lot there. And I think I think for me, um, you know, I am, I think that's my biggest critique of the community. It's like, you know, people tend to, to talk about its diversity all the time, um, but how diverse it is and how they love it because it's so diverse. Um, but what I've realized is that the the way that race is discussed in evanston to me it just feels so much more um because it's not in your face
0: mm.
1: it seems so much more like insidious to me you know um if you think about it like uh if you think about it like uh, like an illness like i want to be able to diagnose what's wrong with me right but the way that i feel like evanston talks about racism is that it's not really diagnosing what the problem is. Saying that I think something is wrong with you, um, but I'm I'm not entirely sure that it actually is real.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. So I think that's something that I've I've struggled with over the years as I've engaged with folks who have really again um, great intentions and uh, you know want to do the right thing, but uh, the actions don't necessarily line up.
0: Going, you know, we're talking about the police department at Evanston. Um, for those who don't know, at the high school, we have correct me if I'm wrong, student resource officers, is that what they're called? Yep. Um, and there's been talk about what's what's the purpose of them being there um in this talk of the reaction with the Black Lives Matter painted, there was the talk of, you shouldn't have student resource, of, student resource officers. What are your your thoughts on having student resources of officers in the school?
1: Um, that's funny, I just had this conversation. Uh, I, I have had fantastic uh, encounters with the SROs at ETHS um, and when, I watched. Um, it was a board meeting on Monday. I don't know what date that was. Uh, um, it was yesterday, the twentieth. So the thirteenth. Um, it was a board meeting, and a whole bunch of people made some public comments about, um, you know, terminating the contract that ETHS has with, uh, you know, EPD and the SROs. And, um, you know, there was there was a, a statement made that um our sros aren't oh jeez it was i'm paraphrasing because i don't have it verbatim yeah that our sros aren't engaging in participating in systemic racism um and i think <laughs> that's an interesting statement to make and while on an individual level they may not be doing so uh the representation of what police have and hold in this nation like, really, you know, um, is where that is present. Um, so it was a little surprising to me that that statement was made. It's like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm trying to think of a, an analogy, uh, you know, for that. Um, <laughs> I can't think of one right now. Um, You know, it's like saying, I don't like the, uh, I don't like the death penalty, but like having a, like an actual guillotine, just like in, you know, in front of whatever institution. It's like, this seems contradictory. Like the guillotine and an electric chair side by side, they might not be working. They might not be functioning. You go sit in the electric chair if you want to, but it represents, you know, uh, Capital punishment, um, which is a you know a, another like issue that uh, I think people uh, you know tend to discuss. Mm-hmm. So long story short, um, I like my own
0: personal opinion about
1: uh, SROs um, is that I don't think that we need
0: to have SROs in any school. And, we, and we've heard of schools, you know, ending contracts with police departments. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and really what i think we I, I really think this idea of you know defunding the police is is huge i never thought that that was even a like a, I never imagined that would even be a, a possible conversation yeah. you know um but if we think about if our country if our nation if it refocuses energies and its resources instead of militarizing our police um and providing more humanizing you know living environments realities for folks that are targeted by police things would be a lot better um and like a lot of this has to be grassroots because it's not going to happen from the top the people at the top uh, want to maintain the position of power that they have so um you know, I, I think on the whole, like would we ever see a, a nationwide movement to do this? No, but I've appreciated the efforts that we've seen, uh, you know, happening in, in certain in certain communities. Um, you know, I was floored when uh, Minneapolis, the city council voted to, you know, defund their, their police. Um, but I think again, like we're in a space where we need to imagine new realities because the reality that we have clearly isn't working for folks. So, yeah, um,
0: yeah. So, what, what are changes that you want to see happen within the school?
1: I guess another loaded question, right? Um, hmm. Like <laughs> try to try to think about this. I feel like I've had to. Uh, choose my words very very carefully Uh, I think I would want to see a complete restructuring of the school day one that um, is more flexible that acknowledges that a lot of us have different realities and lived experiences so what would it be like to create a school day where folks that you know, needed to work could work um, and also, you know, get the, the courses that they needed. Um, I think about what it would be like to actually, like get rid of a lot of requirements for what you have to learn and to create some learning experiences and learning environments that are actually meaningful. Mm -hmm. um you know from my my own experience going to school there were classes that we took conversations that we had that didn't matter to me to my lived experience at all um and i think schools perpetuate uh those realities in ways that we don't need anymore and i think eths does that uh, as it's a school um and the school is bound by you know the school board and uh, state laws, um, you know, that really restrict the the freedom and the imagining that we can do in those spaces. Um, you know, I would love to see a, uh, you know, like, I would love to see curriculum that's built around um, like educational freedom and the way that Bettina Love talks about it. Um, like abolitionist work uh, around anti-oppression around disruption um around love (laughs) we don't talk about you know how to love how to care for one another yeah um you know i i wish it was uh less rigid um you know how to how to do that uh you know that's beyond my pay grade uh and i also think that would require uh, a lot of Uh, imagining from from folks, uh, people who are strong-willed and wanna see things change and shift. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, like truthfully, I wish I can take, like if if we had to think about within the current realities, like I I teach five classes, I wish I can have um, my kids every day, like whatever time frame, eight to four, let's just hypothetically say, uh For like a month or a month and a half, and we would just be focusing on the topic that I wanted to teach would be interdisciplinary it wouldn 't just be like, all right, this is a history course because we 're about to go to chicago and and see some things and learn some things and talk about these realities or you know we're we're not going to have class in the four walls because we're going to be out in the community um, we 're talking to folks we 're going to be you know uh volunteering but not doing it in a in a trivial way let's let's look at what sustainable action looks like let's figure out how to talk to um you know policymakers, um and to you know figure out what uh disruption looks like so that we can live a better world you know
0: A lot of the conversation recently has been around what is it going to look like or what should it look like in the fall in reopening schools in the midst of COVID? Things have gotten worse. They haven't gotten better. How, how do you feel about the fall in this conversation that's been happening about around reopening?
1: Uh, going back to school?
0: Yeah. Schools should be closed. Okay.
1: Let me rephrase this buildings should be closed okay um we first of all we weren't doing school right before you know yeah um if we believe that the system was working fine before then i think we are blind um we got schools that are underfunded we have schools that don't have the resources that they need um You know, folks have been talking about learning loss and all these things that we have lost. We've been doing that for decades before. (laughs) Um, And now all of a sudden there's a a conversation about, oh, you know, here's here's what we have. This is what this pandemic is doing for us. Ah, we've been failing. Um, Or our schools have been doing exactly what they were designed to do before. Mm -hmm. So the push to return back to that uh without any uh you know without any sustainable or like uh you know massive funds to go into school or you know to provide uh for this you know sustainable change these changes that we need to live during a pandemic we can't do that we haven't done that we haven't done that before we haven't done it now so I I don't think it would be wise for us to send um, folks back to school. If you, you know, look at the aggregate, there are 50 million public school students in the United States. Um, there are three and a half million public school teachers
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the United States. I'm not even counting, um, you know, administrators, support staff, right? Think about that massive movement for our nation. We're talking about sending a sixth of our nation back into spaces that they're not supposed to be in in a pandemic because we haven't had a national response. You know We're not like France or um, you know Germany. We're not like what the European countries have been able to do because they've had a coordinated response um, in measurements that they put in place nationwide. Uh, we don't have the people that are rejecting you know, this idea that coronavirus is a hope. Is a hope. Like, what? Um, we don't have people that are protesting against putting masks on their faces. Like, ah, we, we're in a totally. We, we literally don't see that anywhere else. I have not heard of it, or except in Brazil.
0: In Brazil, it has happened.
1: Well, I know they—they they have a uh, a president like that's just like ours. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I don't—I don't know if people are rejecting it like that, but I know that that administration is also saying some of the same mm-hmm. uh, and sharing some of the same information that's false uh, to. The folks that live in that space. So, yeah, uh, uh, for the fall, um, you know, until we see change. And, and the other thing is, is that the number of COVID cases are only going to increase. We closed schools at the, mm, I mean, we were late to the game in the United States, but we closed schools when uh, we had a fraction of the cases that we have now. And we worried about safety then so this push to uh you know quote unquote restart the economy because we want to make sure folks can go back to work is prioritizing money over lived experiences over live lives so again that that just goes to i think the problems um that our nation has
0: yeah do you feel like teachers are getting any any say into what's happening in the fall
1: um across like across the country yes and no it depends um i think it you know it 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 depends on where you are uh there are some places that are listening to educators or others that are not like the governor of i think uh missouri which is like you know if kids get covid they'll get over it they're young (laughs) but we're seeing you know we just that that level of, of ignorance to me is is just extremely infuriating like for lack of a better term I don't want to say stuff that you know I can't put this out on the internet some of the stuff that I really want to say <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh you know infuriating is the that's the word I'll, I'll leave on the table um, for for the way that some people are, are thinking um Especially as it relates to people's people's
0: lives. To sort of bring us to an end in this conversation, what should teachers be doing right now to fight for, you know, social justice and anti-racism? I mean,
1: a lot of stuff. Uh, I think. I think a lot of it starts with uh, it starts with the individual. Um, but it builds as a collective. Um, I think individuals need to understand like who they are, their own positionality, the why behind why they're becoming educators um, and to realize that um, you know teachers in the way that we're currently set up in the ways that our institution is currently set up like we we are seeing, all of our young folks in our nation in our classrooms um and if we want to think about change uh, i think we have to realize the collective capacity and the responsibility um and the opportunity that we have in those spaces to push forward disruptive um and humanizing change so i think it would behoove us uh, as educators to think about this overall project Um, and i know that you can't just flat out say it uh, (laughs) um, because a lot of what we're tasked with doing when it comes to standards or, or laws not really about living in a humanizing space you know you won't pick up a um you won't pick up someone's you know, state code on schools and see them talk about love or to talk about humanity or, you know, to talk about that. You know, educators have to think about that work first. Um, and also, I think we have to, you know, mobilize as community members to get families to really support. Schools, um, as a space where you know change can happen and push and advocate. Um, I think 2020 has showed us that things can happen and change overnight. Um, you know, we can close schools, schools closed for the first in mass hundreds of years, like not 100, yeah, but you know, in in a hundred plus years. you know we've seen school districts say "Ah, oh, we're going to get rid of grades you know i was at northwestern working on a master's degree and they went from grading students to pass-fail courses you know we're talking about a top 10 ranked institution in the united states that carries a reputation and uh, wants to maintain that big old endowment that it has um but uh yeah, I mean, I think it's going to require um, folks to move beyond just us as educators, you know, uh, but I do want new teachers coming into the space and old ones uh, to realize the the work that they have to do and the work that is within their purview to actually change some stuff. So, you know, when I engage and when I do my work, I try to try to own what I can control and uh, what I have uh, the ability to influence. Um, so that's how I, that's how I do it. Um, and it's been transformative for for some. I know for others, I've missed the mark um, and I have to own uh, when I fall short uh, and own the, the type of learning and growth that I need to do um, and can do and should do. Um, but I, I think you know it, it starts with, us owning our individual capabilities and then working as a as a
0: collective in service of of trying to change things yeah well thank you mr winchester for having this conversation with me yeah where's my check (laughs) i'll 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 send it i'll send it to you later Uh, oh that's all good remember to continue to have conversations with your friends families and colleagues about what continues to happen around the country and around the world having these conversations is necessary for real change to happen you have listened to the velasco podcast see you next time